Hello, I'm Katie Brain and welcome to Goodness Gracious Grief. You can shed tears that she has gone, or you can smile because she has lived. You can close your eyes and pray that she will come back, or you can open your eyes and see all that she has left. Your heart can be empty because you can't see her, or you can be full of the love that you shared. You can turn your back on tomorrow and live yesterday, or you can be happy for tomorrow because of yesterday. You can remember June and only that she is gone, or you can cherish her memory and let it live on. You can cry and close your mind, be empty and turn your back, or you can do what she would want, smile, open your eyes, love and go on. That was me reading a poem at my nan's funeral. I lost my nan very suddenly a few weeks ago. She didn't have COVID, but she did die during this pandemic. And like many of other thousands of people, myself and my family have had to deal with the challenges of losing a loved one during this time. For many of you, COVID may have been the first time you've experienced grief. And with all the restrictions that have been in place, you might not have been able to grieve in the way that you would have liked. It certainly feels like we're surrounded by much more sadness and the effects of COVID and the loss will remain even when the lockdown is lifted. Some of you might even be feeling robbed of those final moments. But when you do feel like this, it's important to remember those positive, happy memories that you do have. And I think after Boris's latest announcement, there is now an end in sight and there is a sense of positivity in the air again. So I wanted to get those conversations going, to talk about how we can help each other grieve, how we can communicate better, and how as humans, we really are quite resilient. The conversation I wanted to have for this episode is looking at the end of life care, what support is available for our loved ones when they and their family know that death is imminent. To do that, I'm joined by Ray Ashley Brown, Head of Spiritual Care at the Hospice of St. Francis in Berkhamsted. Now, the Hospice of St. Francis supports 2,000 local men, women and children every year across Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire. Since the pandemic begun, they have found new ways to care, which are all underpinned by the belief that no patient should die alone and that no carer should be left isolated. The hospice does need to raise over £5 million every year to provide its free care and the wellbeing services for those living with cancer and other progressive illnesses like heart and lung disease. And for all of this, they rely on voluntary funding. And as you can imagine, like many other charities, the COVID pandemic has hit the hospice hard and they have experienced the biggest drop in income in its 41-year history. So let's find out about some of the work that the hospice does. I'm joined by Ray Ashley Brown, Head of Spiritual Care at the Hospice of St Francis in Berkhamsted. And I started by asking Ray, what is spiritual care? And is it all to do with faith, as some people might assume? So spiritual care obviously includes religious care, um, but it's wider than that for us. So spiritual care is about um, what's important to somebody, uh, what makes them tick, where do they find their resources when they're going through difficult times, how do they face the existential 
questions of life. So on a, a kind of a normal day, when are people approaching you and what questions are they approaching you with? I will often be approaching them. So um, I try and be present on the inpatient unit, try and be here for people. I've got a little room down here. So in normal times when it's not COVID, patients, if they're up and about, will pass my room and they might come in for a chat. Families will do the same. But I'm also going around to see patients. So sometimes it's, and very often, it's just being with somebody. It can be just talking about the weather, uh, just talking about general things. But sometimes it's talking about things that on the surface might feel like they're, uh, they're not very important, but underneath you can sense there's more going on. Uh, and sometimes we get down to the questions of, um, uh, you know, the big questions of life, like why me? What happens when I die? Worry about things from the past. Uh, worry about family. Trying to help communication between patients and families. It's really being a companion. So if, you, if you've listened to ramblings on Radio 4 with Claire Balding, uh, that's kind of what I feel like I'm doing spiritually. I'm just spending some time with a person walking the same path that they're walking for a period of time. Reflecting on the past year, obviously, with the whole pandemic, everything has kind of been thrown up in the air. The way that we're doing everything is completely different. So have you been able to make any sense of this pandemic at all? And how are you kind of helping to support people differently through through this? Like everybody else, there's been a lot more virtual communication. I had a very moving time um, during the last lockdown with a lady who I'd already visited and wanted some help making sense of, of her past and also planning her funeral. And she was dying at home on her own. Uh, she was being visited by, by carers too, but she wanted some final prayers. And we did that virtually, uh, lit a candle and um, spent some time together. And I was a little bit worried that that might be uh, a little bit cold, uh, that it might not work very well, but actually it was very moving. It was beautiful, it was intimate. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that, that during times when things have to be virtual, everybody's working really hard at what they're doing. We kind of both knew that this wasn't ideal, but we really both gave ourselves to what we were doing. And that, that goodwill, if you like, um, that wanting to communicate with one another was more powerful than the fact that it was virtual uh, and actually ended up being a really, like I say, a really special time. Patients that I actually have seen, it's been quite interesting that staff uh, particularly nurses have found wearing masks and all the gear that they have to put on uh, has really hindered communication and I can understand that because especially if you're if you're with somebody who's a bit hard of hearing um, you know the mask isn't ideal and then hearing what patients are saying so there are lots of issues there but one of the things that I've found is that I've managed to get into a conversation with somebody more quickly 
uh, and more deeply than I normally would. And I, I've tried, I've reflected on why might that be. And I think it's something of what I've said before that everybody's trying harder than usual. Um, you know, uh, patients are grateful that you're there, even though you've got to wear uh, a mask and a gown and gloves and all the rest of it. Um, and and you're you're trying to make the most of the time as well because you can't just pop in like you normally would. Um, but the other thing that I think uh, in terms of my work is that having masks on means that people are looking more into your eyes. And I think that aids communication in terms of existential things, spiritual things. You know, people say the eyes are the window of the soul. And I think the fact that people have been more focused on me and my eyes, that communication has been... Uh, been aided by it actually rather than hindered by it in some cases and uh, I remember one particular lady who um, she was quite a spiritual lady she wasn't a religious person uh, I ended up taking her funeral in the end but when we spent time together um, she stared into my eyes uh, and it was obvious that she was she was asking you know is this somebody I can trust What's this person thinking? Does this person want the best for me? That's how it felt to me. And I think I built up trust with her more quickly than I normally would have done because we were having this eye-to-eye -eye contact in such an intense way. That's really interesting because I was, I was going to ask this, actually, because in a hospice setting, obviously everyone's going to be have to wear their PPE. So I was going to ask, you know, does that kind of make the whole process kind of a little more dehumanizing but it sounds like there that you would disagree and we're actually reconnecting again on a, another level yeah I think other would probably say it has been dehumanizing for them nurses I think are are in and out sometimes more quickly they're trying to communicate uh, um, in a verbal way in ways that I'm not always sometimes and I'm just there but for me in my particular role although I've had less time with people, it's been sometimes more effective. There's some really interesting research done between the University of Amsterdam and the University of Toronto around, around lying and whether people can spot whether somebody's lying or not. And I won't go into the whole plot because it's hard to explain, but basically what they found was when somebody's face was covered people were more effectively able to tell if that person was lying or not. And you might think it's the other way around. So if I can see your whole face, it's easier for me to know if you're lying. But they found actually, no, it's the other way. If somebody's face was covered and they could just see their eyes, they were more accurate at telling whether somebody was lying or not. And I think it's connected to, to what I've found in my work as well. Do you find, well, obviously we're here because death and dying is such a taboo subject, but is there a point when people are kind of facing end of life? Is there a turning point where they suddenly open up and want to talk about everything? Some people do. Some people's way of coping is not to talk about it. And that's fine. And I think giving people permission not to have to talk by your presence is part of what I do. Because some, sometimes people don't want to talk, but they feel guilty that they don't want to talk. They feel that they should talk. <laughs> but actually, if they know that they don't have to talk, if, if that's not what's going to be helpful to them, that's fine. Other people do open up 
and they open up very quickly. Uh, and uh, I think that process of getting to know somebody is often speeded up towards the end of life. So it's, yeah, it's, it's different for different people. It's often things from the past that, that people want to talk about. Sometimes they want to remember what they've, what they've achieved, to think about the good things. Sometimes there are bad things that they've done or that have happened to them, uh, and they want to work through those things. But what people are often doing at the end of life is making meaning of their life and of what's happening to them. And so my role is really just facilitating them doing that. Um, and often it's just by being there, but sometimes it's asking the right questions at the right time. And what about families who have lost loved ones? Because obviously this year is just been completely different. I've lost two nans in the, the last month and, you know, not being able to hug my mum because she was isolating that that was the most difficult bit for me because I could just see how heartbroken she was and just not being able to hug someone. And are people grieving differently? Is it harder for them to grieve because they felt like they've missed out on those final moments? I think it's much harder for some people. And we find it hard here too, because our bereavement support is very often face-to-face and it can't be at the moment. I think some of the dynamic that I talked about where things being virtual um, isn't completely a bad thing. That, that's there too. Um, you know, we've supported a lot of people by, by phone or by, uh, by Zoom or FaceTime or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and that's been good. I, I, I don't know if we'll see the full extent of this until we fully come out of the COVID situation. Um, but it will be really interesting to see how people adapt my um, my hunch is that some of the people I've seen have not coped. Uh, it's, it's not been it's not been worse for them than it normally would have been. They've coped in the way that we would normally expect. It's been different, and it's had different pressures. But they have grieved at the same sort of pace, if you like, as they normally would have done. And I I think that's been encouraging. We're quite resilient, I think, as human beings. Uh, and I think sometimes it is what it is and, and, and you, you grieve in the way that you do under the circumstances. I think one of the things that often surprises us is when we look at people who've been through incredibly diff- difficult things, um, sometimes some of the things that we don't usually experience in this country um, you know, persecution and, uh, and famine, or, and, and we, we marvel at how uh, people have been able to go through that. But um, while we've been going through the pandemic, I think, although there have been so many things that have just been heartbreaking, we've seen some of that resilience too, that, that we have that built in somewhere as, as human beings. We really don't like it as people who work with bereaved, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, because, you know, we would normally be giving somebody a hug, uh, sitting in a room with them, not on the phone or on on the computer. Having a cup of tea. (laughs) And having a cup of tea. (laughs) And all all those other British things we do. (laughs) So how can 
we like how can everyone going about their their daily lives help someone who's grieving because I feel like at the moment if someone's lost someone you kind of you keep your distance from them because you don't know what to say you don't want to say the the wrong thing what can we do to just help people through this time I think the important thing is not to cut yourself off from people and to stay in touch as much as you can uh, and to listen more than speak but also you know you've just said people often don't know what to say and I think that's quite a legitimate that's quite a legitimate thing to to say to somebody I really don't know what to say I, I, I've got no words but I just want you to know uh, that I feel for you and that I'm here for you and if you want to chat uh, I'm I'm around um, and people's fear of not knowing what how they'll be or or what to say keeps them away from people as you've said so often but um, I try and work through that uh, that feeling and make that contact because it's so important to people if you've lost somebody especially especially at this time you mentioned the eye contact earlier and how kind of wearing these masks during the pandemic has kind of made us regain one of one of the most important things but how else has your role changed during COVID-19 and is there anything that you kind of want to to stay uh, is there anything you've benefited from during this time in some ways I think what I've experienced during the pandemic will make me braver in my interactions with patients and families because just in the way that I'm wearing a mask and so they're looking me straight in the eye um, I think I'm I think I might uh, you know you don't want to freak people out but I think I might my eye contact might stay with somebody longer uh, than it than it used to um, uh, if that if that makes if that makes sense um, so I think I think it will make me braver because because I know that um, I know that that connection uh, actually works. So I'll, I'll probably I'll probably give more eye. I mean, I obviously give a lot of eye contact anyway because if you don't look at somebody in the eyes, you know, it's very disrespectful. But I'll probably I'll probably give more of that, and I'll expect more of that back. Um, that's one way that that it, it my work might change a little bit. Um, I think also some of the virtual stuff, whether it's by phone or computer, what I've learned is that it actually suits some people. Some people prefer that for an initial visit. Um, and um, I'll probably keep more of that going, more phone calls, more FaceTime, uh, because you can always go and, and make a personal visit if you feel that's right. Um, but I've, I've got the feeling over the, the last uh, year that some people feel less threatened by a phone call or by something on the computer. Uh, it actually works better for them, uh, which I would probably not have thought before. Um, so I'll, I'll keep more of that. And I think that might, that might help me see more people, make more contacts. Because uh, obviously, you know, there's no travel time, you're sitting here. Uh, like people now, you know, we think that people are gonna probably work from home more after the pandemic than they did before. Uh, probably the case with me as well, I'll spend more time on the phone. That was Ray Ashley Brown, Head of Spiritual Care at the Hospice of St Francis in Berkhamsted. 
Like many other charities, the hospice is reliant on voluntary fundraising and the support of its local community. As I said earlier, the result of the COVID pandemic means there has been temporary closures of its shops and cancelled events. And the hospice has experienced the biggest drop in income in its 41 year history. If you want to find out more about the Hospice of St Francis, you can visit stfrancis.org.uk. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and grief might be new for you, please have a listen to the other topics discussed. We've covered things from the stages of grief to the afterlife, as well as some personal stories of loss. And obviously there are still lots of more interesting conversations to come. I think if anything has come out of this pandemic, it's that we need to stay in touch, to reach out to our friends and family and keep checking in on each other. Take the time to listen and ask, are you really okay? I'm Katie Brain and you've been listening to Goodness Gracious Grief.